First John chapter 2, verses 3 to 11 is what we're going to read together. Uh, if you've got an electronic copy, a paper copy, or if you just want to follow along on the screen behind me, it'll be up there as well. We'll, we'll start reading in verse 3 and read down through verse 11, where John says, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. And at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. You know, if you read the literature on parenting these days, um, there is a significant emphasis on raising children with a healthy sense of self-esteem or a healthy self-confidence. Right? Because a healthy self, not an arrogance, right? Not where they think that they are the best thing since sliced bread, but a healthy self-esteem, a healthy self-confidence. Because a healthy self-confidence helps them to move out into the world in ways in which they're able to take risks that are appropriate. Not foolish risks, but appropriate risks. It enables them to engage relationally and actually know who they are and be grounded in who they are no matter what those around them are doing. They can have a certain sense of self-confidence that they can stay grounded to their, truth, their, their values and their priorities. It helps them in academics. It helps them in athletics. It helps them eventually in business or in education. It helps them in every facet of life to have this well-grounded sense of self-confidence. And listen, in, in John's little letter here, in chapter 2, verse 1, if you go back just a couple of verses, he says, my little children, my little children, he, call, he, he refers to them affectionately. And I want you to know something, church. I want you to know that the same thing that a healthy self-confidence does for the mind and heart of a biological child of yours, that assurance does in the life of a spiritual child of God. But the same thing self-confidence does for a child's mind is what assurance does for a Christian soul. It helps them move out into the world and take risks. It helps them be obedient to God even when the culture is running counter to their values and priorities. It helps them in every facet of life, in, their, in, in marriage. It helps you in parenting. It helps you in everything that you put your hands to and labor for to have a healthy sense of assurance that you are God's and that you know Him rightly and truly. And so that's why John writes this letter to give assurance to those who do know him that they do know him. Are you with me? Right? To, to let you know that if you know him, that you really do know him, and you know him rightly, and you know him truly. And I love the way that John just takes into account the whole breadth of human personality and the way that he writes. Because listen, there are some in this room this morning whose assurance, 
your assurance is you lose it too easily because your conscience is so soft. It's so sensitive that with every sin, you ever, I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but with every sin, right, you kind of lose this sense of assurance that God loves me. How can God love me? You look at yourself in the mirror. If he only knew what I'd done, well, he does know what you did and he loves you anyway. He loved you before you did it and he still loves you after you did it. Right? And there are some who lose their assurance so easily that they need what John said in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Whenever he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. Listen, you need to go back and listen to last week's sermon if you lose your assurance too easily. And listen particularly to the end of that sermon as we talked about God working in Christ and Christ appealing to the Father for justice for you, not for mercy, because He has paid your punishment so that you don't have to suffer it. Right, you need to go back and remember you have an advocate. And you know what an advocate is? A legal counsel. Someone who pleads your case for you. And whatever your advocate in our day, the most common way you can refer to that is a lawyer, right? Your lawyer, whatever your lawyer wins for you, you win. Whatever your lawyer loses for you, guess what? You lose. <laughs> but your advocate, Jesus Christ, hasn't lost anything for you. He's only won for you as he pleads before the Father. And if, you lose, if your conscience is so sensitive and so soft that you lose your assurance easily, you need to read verses 1 and 2. But listen, there's another group of folks. He knows our humanity well, that our, some people's consciences are so seared that they don't lose their assurance easily enough. And I've encountered those types of believers in my 20 some odd years of Christian ministry. They don't lose their assurance easily enough. And they need what John says in verses 3 to 11. If you lose it too easily because it's so soft, you need what he says in verses 1 and 2. If you lose it, you don't lose it easily enough because it's so seared, you need what he says in verses 3 to 11. You need some test in your life to identify whether or not this fellowship that you claim to have with God, this knowledge of God that you claim to have, this intimacy with the infinite, because that's what Christianity promises. It promises that you might have a real relationship as a creature with a real creator who brought you into existence and know him truly, know him rightly, and know him personally. That you would share in his life, that you would share in his interest, that you would share in communication and communion with him. But because of our tendency at times as human beings to be self-deceived, we have some external, verifiable tests that John gives us so that we might know that we know him. Like in the same way that a detective, right? I, I love to watch detective shows on TV. I, I just like to watch them like build the case, collect evidence, right? Come to some kind of conclusion, convict somebody, and it just kind of, I don't necessarily like the law side of the, the law and order type shows, but I like the more like detective type shows, right? So I just get into those. I love playing Clue with my kids, right? You know, I lo love the game Clue, right? Where you sit down and you roll the dice and you move around the board and you go to this room and you take this weapon and you, t you write down this person, right? And this place, and you keep making guesses. Like I had to teach my kids the deductive logic side of things, right? And so as you work through all the evidence around you to lead you to not only a conclusion but an accusation, John does the same thing. He gives us evidence, external verifiable evidence of our knowing God so that we might come not to an accusation but to assurance. And so what are the two tests that he gives us here? That's what we're going to look at this morning. The first one is this. The first test that John gives 
is obeying God. As simply as I can say, is obeying God. In verses 3 to 6, John gives us a piece of evidence that gives rise to our assurance, and that's our obedience. Listen to what he says again in verses 3 to 6. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. John says that the evidence of real fellowship, authentic intimacy with God, is that there is observable and verifiable obedience to God's commands. The things that God calls us to do, the things that God prohibits us from, that we are walking in accordance with God's commands. In fact, John goes further than that. Look what he says in verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. In essence, John says that there is, listen church, there is no experience. Hear that word closely. There is no experience of assurance apart from obedience. There is a ground for your assurance. There is a basis for your assurance, and it is the work of Christ. That Christ and Christ alone has made us acceptable before God. Christ and Christ alone has made us righteous in the eyes of God. Christ and Christ alone has made us, given us God's approval and favor in our lives. That is the basis and the grounds. That's how you can know that you know God. But the way that you do, in, as it flushes itself out in your life, is in your submission and your obedience to his commands as you put one foot in front of the other and as you walk in the path of his commandments. And we experience assurance as we walk in obedience. Part of what that means is this, listen church, is that while you may be a Christian who is, to use common vernacular backslidden or living in disobedience or willfully rebelling against God. You may be a Christian who's in that position, but listen, so if you come to me and say, listen, I'm struggling with whether or not I know God, and we begin to take inventory of your life, and there are areas of sin that you continue to yield to constantly over and over again with no repentance, with no remorse, and without any recourse, then I would look at you and say, listen, you may be a Christian, but I can't give you any assurance of that. Because you continue to give yourself to this over and over and over again without any sense of repentance or wanting to turn or inviting accountability or moving forward. Right? There, 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 there is, John says there's no experience of, of assurance apart from obedience to God's commands. Now what commands does, does John have in mind? I might ask that question. Like if you go back into Jesus, uh, in, in, his, his teachings in the Gospels, uh, in three of the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you're going to find the scribes pressing him on what is the greatest of the commandments. Right? They're just lobbing grenades at Jesus. Right? And so they're trying to trip him and trap him. And he's just like, the grenade comes and he just crushes it across the fence and it explodes when it gets over there. Right? Not on him. And so one of the scribes comes up and says, Jesus, I've got one. What is the greatest of the commandments? What is the most important thing in the mind and the heart of God that he's revealed to us in his word? And Jesus says in Mark 12, 28 to 31, as he responds to that, Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. He says God is unique. God stands alone. He has no rival. There is no one above him. There is no one beside him. Everyone is beneath him. He is one and alone. And then he goes on to say, the greatest of the commandments is to love this God who is infinitely unique with everything that you are, with all the affections of your heart, with all the attention of your mind, with all the activities of your hands, and with all the depth of your soul. And then to love those created in his image as you do yourself, your neighbor. Now, in other, in, elsewhere in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus goes on to say, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, everything written back here is summarized by these two things. Now, what Jesus is not saying is this, is that everything back here is dismissed. Rather, everything back here is summarized in these two. And we might even say going forward, into the New Testament, in the Gospels and the commandments that Jesus teaches, and the things that Paul teaches, and the things that Peter teaches, and the things that John teaches, all of them can be summarized back into what Jesus has to say about loving God with all that we are and loving those created in His image as we love ourselves. Loving our neighbor like ourselves. They don't trump all the other commandments, but they're a summary of them. You with me so far? Now, listen, it's, it's, it's particularly important in our culture to say this, okay? We live in somewhat of an elder brother kind of culture. You know the elder brother was in the story of the prodigal son, right? The, in, the, in, the, in the story of these two sons where the one comes to the father and says, listen, I'm tired of your rules, I'm tired of your restrictions, I'm tired of your regulations. Give me my inheritance. And he goes off to a far country and he squanders all of his father's wealth in wild living. And there he is at the end of his rope eating the food that the pigs ate. And it's, the Bible says he comes to his senses, right? And so he realizes that the servants in his father's home were better, ate better than he did, were cared for better than he was. He's like, so I can go back to my father, throw myself at his feet, plead for his mercy, just be a servant, not a son. And whenever he comes home, the father sees him from a distance, hikes up his robe, takes off running down the road, and embraces him, says, welcome home, my son. This one who was lost is now found. Slay the fattened calf. Take the ring and the robe and put him on him. Let's feast and celebrate. I mean, the biggest party this corner of the world has ever known. And so everyone's in the house rejoicing and celebrating other than his older brother who was out in the fields with his arms folded, with his brow scowled, is that that's the right word? Yeah, brow, he's, he's scowling, right? Scurried, that's not the, no, that's like a rodent, right? So he's scowling his brow, like he's just angry, fuming. And the father comes out to entreat him. And the elder son says, I have been here all these years laboring for you never once violated anything you asked me to do I have kept I've I've submitted to you in everything and never did you take the fattened calf and slay it for me you never threw a party for me and my friends and you know what the father says son everything I have is yours 
that elder brother had a view of the father that was akin to what we might see in our day and time as moralistic and legalistic. That I keep all the rules, I keep all the regulations, and then God rewards me. That is not what John is saying. And we live in that kind of culture. Listen, in the buckle of the Bible belt, there are some of us in this room who have had experience in churches that have been filled with legalism, that have been filled with moralism. Like the motto of the church is we don't dance and we don't chew and we don't go with girls who do. Right? That was the motto of the church. Right? That's our mission statement. Right? So just a very legalistic kind of culture. Right? That puts all kinds of restrictions and regulations on people that God never lays. They take God's commands and they back off 17 steps and say, well, this is what God says, so if you do this down here, then you're breaking that. And that's, that's, that's not at all what John is saying. So if you come from that background, don't hear me saying that. If you think that's what Christianity is about, don't hear me saying that. Because what John is saying is this, it's consistent with what the rest of the scriptures teach is that you've got to get this cause and effect relationship right, that knowing God, listen, obedience to God's commands is not a condition for knowing God. It's a consequence of knowing God. You know the difference? God doesn't look down and say, where are those who are righteous? Where are the good ones? Right? And then those who are really, really good... I will allow into my presence and I will accept them and I will embrace them and I will stamp them with my approval and I will give them my favor. No, when God looks down, He sees that there is no one righteous. No, not one. Not one. And so He determines before the foundations of the world to send His Son his one and only Son, Jesus Christ, as we saw earlier in the text in John chapter 2, the righteous, the one righteous, who would come and He would live in our place and He would die in our place. So He would live the perfect life of obedience that we owed to God and He would die the death of sin as a punishment for sin that we deserve to die. And that God would raise Him from the grave and He would ascend to the right hand of the Father. And that God would set His affection upon His children uh, from, from eternity past, that He was loving us as sons and daughters. And then in time and space, He calls us to Himself. And He opens our eyes to see the, the, the folly of our sin and the beauty of Christ. And we are, we are compelled and drawn to Him to love Him because He first loved us. And then out of that experience of knowing God, not because we deserve to, but because He was gracious and free. That we know Him by grace, through faith and in Christ. Out of that experience of knowing Him, the consequences begin to flow from our lives of obedience. It's not a condition, it's a consequence. It's important to recognize that. Right? Because when you recognize that, church, then God's commands begin to shift in your mind from have-tos to want-tos when you taste of the love of God. They become things that you want to do to honor Him. You want to do to, to please Him. You want to do to obey Him. They become want-tos. See, listen, they become something not that are duties to perform, but principles in which you delight. Delight in His commands. Listen, there are three times in these verses where John uses the word keep. 
You keep his commands. You keep his word. You keep his commandments. That word keep literally means this, to guard it as a treasure. So that God's commands become something that are valuable to you. They are not commonplace. You don't just dismiss them. They, are, they become sweet on your tongue rather than bitter, as the psalmist says, right? That the, that, the, that, the, that the precepts of God, the commands of God, the word of God is sweet like honey to me. When I taste it, it's not bitter any longer. It's not sour any longer, but it's sweet. It's evidence of knowing God. Right? They're, they're, they're not things that are burdensome, but they're beautiful. They're not shackles any longer, but they bring freedom in your life. You don't see them as narrow, but you see them as expansive and open and wide. Listen, the best way I can illustrate that is from one of C.S. Lewis's books in this Chronicles of Narnia series, The Last Battle. And in that book, you have Tyrion, who's one of the heroes who's fighting against the forces of evil. And as they're fighting, they, they kind of are pressed back and they see this small little stable off in the distance and so they flee to the stable for refuge. And as they enter into the stable, they open the door and they come in. This is how Lewis describes it. He says, Tyrion had thought, or would have thought, if he had time to think at all, that they were inside a little thatched stable, about 12 feet long and 6 feet wide. In reality, they stood on grass. The deep blue sky was overhead. The air which blew gently on their faces was that of a day in early summer. Not far away from them rose a a grove of trees, thickly leaved, but under every leaf no one had uh, seen in our world. The fruit made Tyrion feel as if he must be in autumn, but there was something in the feel of the air that told him it could be no later than June. So they all moved toward the trees. Everyone raised his hand to pick a fruit, the fruit he best liked the look of, and then everyone paused for a second. The fruit was so beautiful. And, and each... and, and the, the fruit was so beautiful that each felt it can't be meant for me. Surely we're not allowed to pluck it. It's all right, said Peter. I know what we're all thinking. I, I'm, I'm sure we, we needn't think it. I have a feeling that we've gone to the country where everything is allowed. And then Lewis says, what was the fruit like? Unfortunately, no one can describe a taste. All I can say is that compared with other fruits, the freshest grapefruit you've ever eaten was dull and the juiciest orange was dry the most melting pear was hard and woody and the sweetest wild strawberry was sour and there were no seeds or stones or even wasps if you had once eaten that fruit all the nicest things in the world would taste like medicine after it but I can't describe it You can't find out what it's like unless you get to that country and taste it for yourself. And then as Tyrion explores this inside of this stable, this fascinating country that he finds himself in, he sees a small rough wooden door. And around that door was the framework of a doorway with no walls, no roof, or nothing else. And as he walked around the door, he stood amazed by how the door just stood there. And when he peeked through the cracks between the wooden planks and the door, he saw the darkness of the outside world. He saw the world that he had just retreated from and left. And it says, and then Lewis writes, and then he looked round again and he could hardly believe his eyes. There was blue sky overhead, the grassy country spreading as far as he could see in every direction, and his friends all round him laughing. It seems then, said Tyrion, smiling to himself, that the stable seen from within and the stable seen from without are two different places. 
Yes, said Lord Didgery. It's inside is bigger than it's outside. And whenever you come to know God rightly in fellowship with Him, the commands of God are expansive, open, life-giving to you. That's a mark. That's a test. And you want to walk in obedience to them. Do you always do it perfectly? No. But you want to walk in obedience to them because they give life. But listen, John doesn't even stop there. We might not make it to the second test this morning. That'll be okay. We'll finish it up next week. He doesn't even stop there because listen to what he says. And this is even more astounding. He says that as you do these things, as you obey God's commands, that your love for God grows in proportion to your obedience to His commands. In verse 5, listen to what he says. But whoever keeps His word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. That the love you have for God is bolstered, it is fanned into flame as you walk in obedience to His command. That word perfected, it literally means it's made complete or it's made mature. In other words, there's a marked out end that it has in mind and it's moving and marching you towards that end as it's being perfected in you. It's also a passive tense verb. What that means is this, that you're not doing the perfecting, but God is. God is. So as you're walking in obedience to His commands, He, by the power of His Holy Spirit, is perfecting and maturing and completing your your love for Him in your heart so that as you step forward in obedience, God is fueling love for you which is feeding further obedience which is a cycle that repeats itself. That as you walk in obedience, there's deeper love for God which prompts a more risky obedience to God which prompts a deeper love for God which moves you toward a higher level of obedience to God in your life. Uh, And so this love is being perfected in your life. A love for God. So listen, church, let me ask you a question. Is your heart cold today towards God? Is it stale? Do you find that your heart is hardened towards God? So that whenever we sing about the grace of God, when we sing about the mercies of God, there's not delight rising in your soul. Even if it's not your favorite song, but as it's the lyrics are true and they are right and they are real and they are consistent with the teaching of Scripture, you find there's a delight rising in your soul as you rejoice in this God. Do you find that as you open His Word that it is sweet to your tongue? Do you find that it's nourishing your soul? Do you find that your heart is leaping and rejoicing and delighting in God? If not, if not, What John says here is that it may be that there are areas of disobedience in your life that you continue to put your feet and hands to. So that His love has not been withdrawn from you, but you're not tasting of it. It's not being perfected because there's not a walking in obedience. You're not rejoicing in deeper senses of His love for you. Is your heart cold today? Is it stale today? Is it hard? Let me ask you, do you have an enemy that you need to forgive? 
Are you wronging someone right now in word or deed that you need to make reparations for, that you need to repent of? Are you using your words in ways that are tearing others down? Are you slandering and gossiping about your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you talk more about people than you do to them? If so, you need to rein in your tongue and walk in obedience and use words that are life-giving. Time, time speaking the, the, the truth in love, yes, but to that person, not about them. Right? Are there areas of your life, are you, are you, are you, are you looking, are you, do you, can you not wait until the rest of your family goes to bed to pull, up a, pull out a smartphone and peruse images that you know are, 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 are causing you to be sick and they're destroying you, they're destroying intimacy in your marriage? Are there things that you need to set aside, repent from, turn away from, and walk in obedience? And listen, as you do, there will be a deeper sense of God's love for you and your love for Him that will build and begin to crash like a tidal wave in your life. So the first test is obeying God, keeping His commands, walking as Jesus walked in obedience to the Father. The second test is this, and we've got a few minutes left, so I'm going to go ahead and start it at least. This is the second test that John gives in this text. It's loving the church. It's loving the church. Listen, John says one of the ways that you know, one of the evidences that you have is not just a moral test, but a relational one. It's love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen to what he says in verses 7 to 11 again. I'm writing you in no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Whoever hates his brother is still in, is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now, at first glance, it seems like John's speaking out of both sides of his mouth, right? <laughs> How can this be an old command and a new command at the same time, John? Come on, like, get with the program, okay? But listen, if you understand when John was writing this, to whom John was writing this, then it begins to make sense to you why he's saying what he says and how he says it. See, those who had broken, we said the very first week of this series, that those who had broken fellowship with the apostles and the churches to which he was writing had gone out, right? They, they kind of made their own sandbox. They were playing in their sandbox, but they were trying to get others to come into the sandbox with them by advocating a different understanding of Jesus, a different understanding of sin, a different understanding of obedience, a different understanding of what it meant to be a part of the church. And they were spewing and espousing hatred towards the apostles and slandering their former brothers as they had left those churches. And so they, were, they weren't walking in love towards them, but they were walking in hatred towards them. And so when John says that this command that he's giving is an old command, what he's saying is this. I'm giving you the very same command that Jesus gave us in John chapter 13. Right? In John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus says, a new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
So he said, I'm pointing you back to the thing that you've heard from the very beginning. It's been some odd 50 years or so since Jesus' life in ministry and the writing of 1 John. So John says, from your conver- point of your conversion forward, this is not some new or novel teaching that I'm giving you. It's something you've heard from the very beginning. It's old to you. But it's also new, he says. He says, because in him and in you, it's coming to its full fulfillment. That it's marking you out as my followers, as, Je- as Jesus himself said it would. That Jesus has loved us par excellence, right? No one can love anyone more than Jesus has demonstrated love for his church, for his bride, for his sheep, for his brothers and sisters. In the giving of his life, and he says, as you give your life for your brothers and sisters, as you exercise love towards them, you're showing yourself to be my disciples as well. You're showing that you know this God who indeed is love. As you love the brothers. Now listen, that newness that he's speaking of there is not a newness of time. Right? It's a newness of quality. Now listen, here's what that means. Like some of you are like, what is that? what's the difference? Here's the difference. Have you ever heard of maybe an old song before? Uh, maybe an old classic song that some modern composer took and rearranged? And then that song? Or a movie maybe that you've watched? Like they did a, the first rendition in 1970 and then the second rendition came out in like 2000, right? Or maybe, and some, some, some were maybe working on the third rendition of the movie, right? And as the story itself, the story doesn't change, but the way that the story is told brings a freshness and a newness to it. Right? That's the kind of quality that John's speaking of. There's a quality here that's coming forth in the way that Jesus is loved and the way that you're loving one another. Right? You see that. You, you experienced that kind of love. It's something old and yet it's new at the same time. It's because it's new in quality. And listen, he says the mark is your love for the brothers. The test is, do you love the church? Not do you love the designer church that you've constructed for yourself, right? But do you love the church that God has planted you in? The people who are around you. The, bro- the people you call brothers and sisters. The people you worship with. The people you come to the Lord's table with. The people you sit in life groups with. Do you love them? you love them? And listen, church, I, I want to take a moment this morning as we close just to affirm you. Just to affirm you, because listen, I have, in the seat that I sit in, it's a good seat. I like it. Right? But in the seat that I sit in, I get to see much of the love that is demonstrated to people who are members here in this church. I got to see it over the last four and a half years as you, many of you, cared for the Provo family. I got to see it as you moved towards Melanie in her illness and her disease. I got to see it as you brought meals. L- listen, I think over the last four years, it was, we, we brought as many meals to the Provost as we didn't bring, just about, right? There was the, the meal train was going probably more than it wasn't going to care for their family as she went through that illness. And to see the way people moved towards Hires and Savannah when she was in the hospital and she was on in her last days. People were wanting to be there, wanting to support them, raising money, wanting to move towards their need. To see the way that this church has loved one another has been a blessing to me. It's been a blessing to my family. 
to see the way this church has moved toward other people here who have been in need, the Welches, and bringing meals to them, and Steve's surgery. Brother, it's a blessing to see you back here this morning in the last two weeks. To see the way when people have babies, you show up with food, and you show up with gifts, and you shower them with all kinds of things as you love them, not just in word and tongue, but as John will say later in chapter 3, with actions and in truth. Look, it is a mark of a New Testament church, Jesus says. The way the world will know you're my disciples is by the way you love each other in church. You have loved one another well. Thank you. And I give thanks to God for you. And Jesus says, or John says, as we close, the reason, the reason this is the mark is because look what he says in the text. I'm going to point you back to it. In, I got to find it. I'd close my Bible. He's going to say it this way. In verse 9, whoever says he's in, whoever loves his brother, verse 10, I'm sorry, is in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But back up in verse 8, he says, this new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, is true because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Have you ever been in the mountains and watched the sunrise? Right? Not, you can't find that in Texas unless you go way west Texas. But have you ever been in the mountains and watched the sunrise? As that sun begins to rise over the horizon and, then, and the first twinkles of, of like civil daylight, right? And then as it rises up above the horizon and it slowly begins to peek over like the, the, the caps of the mountains, as that begins to happen, what do you have? You have light being shed across the valley, but some parts of the valley are still in darkness. Right? Until it rises in all of its fullness, and it gets overhead, and then everything underneath it is, is exposed to the light. And John is saying the same thing is happening right now in human history. Like that the, the darkness is slowly receding because the true light is already shining. And while there may still be pockets of darkness, that Jesus is, the light of his love is shining abroad over his people. And there may be pockets of darkness in your own life now. But I want you to know that when the sun rises in all of its fullness upon Christ's return, all that will be wiped away. All those dark spots will, like, like the, the, the ultimate stain remover, right? It's not OxyClean, it's Jesus. He's going to eventually expunge all of that. All of it. Thank you. Like mother, like daughter. <laughs> but, but, that it, it's rising, it's coming, church. And the evidence of the fact that it's dawning in your life is this love. It's this love. And I see it in so many places, so many people. These are the two tests John gives us in this text. Obeying God, loving the church. Where is it in your life that you need today to begin to set your feet on the path of obedience and experience love for God swelling in your heart? And where is it today 
that you can move towards the need in the life of a brother or sister and express that love for God and your love for one another. If you're struggling with assurance today, John says, obey in love. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for the evidences of grace that I see in this church. This church for which your son died, this church in which your spirit is active and at work, this church that you have planted in this place. And Father, as we took a step even almost three years ago now to relocate with a heart and a vision for this community. God, we see evidences of grace in our midst and we're thankful for them to you. And Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in the room this morning, your little children, those who are your sons and daughters. Father, I pray that they would walk in obedience and that they would experience assurance because they would have a love for you rising in their heart. They would drive them to great risk. They would drive them to levels of obedience that they have not known in the past, of putting sin to death in their lives, of confessing that sin to you and knowing your forgiveness, knowing your cleansing. And they would confess it one to another and invite accountability and move from anonymity so that sin no longer has a place to breed in the darkness. But God, that you might help us put it to death. And Father, may as well we continue in the path of loving one another. Help us to see each other through the lens of the gospel so that even whenever we are wounded and sinned against in this congregation, that there might be a willingness to forgive and to reconcile, not to part ways, but to see the gospel at work, to see each other through the lens of as, as fallen creatures who are loved by a loving Father that we would be loving brothers and sisters as well. I thank you for the way we've seen care and concern distributed, not only to those who are part of this church, but those that we meet in this community, even those who have gone out from us to other churches. But they're still loving their brothers and sisters, even though they don't meet under the same roof on Sunday mornings. Help us, Father, to grow in that. To see each other rightly even as we know you rightly through your son, we pray in his name.